1: America's NSA reviews 25 vulnerabilities under active exploitation by Chinese intelligence services. The UK's NCSC accuses the GRU of more international cyber attacks. The US Justice Department brings its long expected antitrust suit against Google. Ben Yellen examines overly invasive company Zoom policies. Our guest is Jessica Gulick from Cat's Eye with a visit to the Cyber Carnival Games and a warning on abandonware. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. The US NSA has just released an advisory warning that 25 vulnerabilities are under active exploitation by Chinese government cyber operators. All 25 vulnerabilities are well-known and have available patches and mitigations. You can find the discussions as the top entry today in the news section of NSA.gov. The Guardian reports that the UK's National Cybersecurity Center has disclosed that working with its Five Eyes partners in the US NSA, NCSC discovered and tracked Russian plans to interfere with the postponed 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Foreign Secretary Dominic Robb said, quote, The GRU's actions against the Olympic and Paralympic Games are cynical and reckless. We condemn them in the strongest possible terms. The UK will continue to work with our allies to call out and counter future malicious cyber attacks. End quote. The U.S. Justice Department didn't include any operations against the Tokyo Olympics in the indictment it unsealed yesterday and declined in its press conference to comment on the matter. But it seems of a piece with the Olympic destroyer attacks mentioned in the Pittsburgh indictment, which justice sneered, with some justice, combined the emotional maturity of a petulant child with the resources of a nation-state, adding, As this case shows, no country has weaponized its cyber capabilities as maliciously and irresponsibly as Russia, wantonly causing unprecedented collateral damage to pursue small tactical advantages and fits of spite. End quote. A second Guardian piece argues that if you want to see what unrestrained cyber warfare looks like, the content of the U.S. indictment and the U.K. denunciation give you a pretty good idea. And while the activities the GRU stands accused of were damaging, they weren't particularly subtle. Fancy Bear has the reputation of being the noisiest of the Bear sisters, a reputation first earned after Fancy showed up in Leroy Jenkins' Fine Fettle, among the Democratic Party's emails back in 2016. Gadfly Bellingcat has an interesting observation, quote, An example of how bumbling the Russian state is. Of the six indicted hackers, three registered their cars to their military unit's address in Moscow. If you search for all of the people registering their cars to this address, you get 47 results, all probably GRU hackers, end quote. Well, Bellingcat's on a bit of a high horse here, but they do have a point. As they point out farther down in their Twitter thread, quote, NSA workers don't register their vehicles to 9800 Savage Road, Fort Meade. They register it to their home address, End quote. That they do. Any Department of Motor Vehicles is probably challenging enough, but imagining what it's like at the Moscow DMV would drive even the stiffest disciple of Jim Angleton into an OPSEC lapse or two, The Maryland DMV, we expect, is a lot better at customer service than the one in the Moscow Oblast. Our editorial staff has had good luck with the office up on Satter Hill, just off Joppa Road. You're welcome, NSA. But again, as we saw with Chinese operators yesterday, it's worth remembering that the opposition isn't really always three meters tall. A bit of follow-up to the U.S. Justice Department's announcement yesterday that six Russian GRU officers belonging to Unit 74455, the group commonly known as Sandworm, have been indicted for cyberattacks that had global impact. The indictment alleges a wide-ranging conspiracy that wanders from Ukraine's power grid through Notpetya and all of its collateral damage to the Winter Olympics in South Korea and all the way to elections in France and other countries. Some of the reaction has been interesting. Johns Hopkins professor of strategic studies Thomas Ridd commented that since the report's incredible intel is apparently expendable, the Five Eyes, quote, must have stunning visibility into Russia's military intelligence operations, end quote. Ridd highlighted revelations that the group used a Pyongyang false flag, along with exploits allegedly developed by the U.S. National Security Agency, exploits that were eventually compromised. Although Moscow predictably downplayed the indictment as a poorly sourced smear, as the Washington Post reports, and the accused, of course, remain at large. They're in Russia, after all, where the American writ doesn't run. The charges serve as both a show of force and, effectively, a public service announcement to people considering enlisting in Russian military intelligence. The indictment also restricts hackers' access to Western markets, and their ability to travel to countries that have extradition treaties with the U.S. This morning, the U.S. Justice Department also brought its long-expected antitrust suit against Google. Reuters reports that 11 states have joined in the suit, which it compares to the 1974 case against what we used to call simply the phone company that led to the breakup of AT&T's bell system. The plaintiff says at one point, Absent a court order, Google will continue executing its anti-competitive strategy, crippling the competitive process, reducing consumer choice, and stifling innovation. The action seems to have bipartisan support, with progressives like Senator Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, cheering from the sidelines along with other colleagues, both Democrat and Republican. Reuters does note that the 11 states that joined the lawsuit all have Republican attorneys general. And finally, lest any media group hasten to consider deploying libinal controls over its editorial conferences, Avast picks up last week's story on the malfunctioning of intimacy device, safeguard, aid, the cui cellmate, and they draw a lesson. Avoid abandonware, software that goes unmaintained because the vendors are unable to handle it something the Internet of Things seems more predisposed to spawn than other tech regions. Anywho, ask yourself this question. Does this particular thing really need connectivity?
2: Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming.
1: Among the many things we missed out on in the summer of COVID-19 was the annual family trip to the county fair. The sights, the sounds, the smells of local 4-Hers with their livestock, the Midway rides, the fried and barbecued food, and of course, the Carnival Midway, full of games of skill and chance. Jessica Gulick is CEO at Cat's Eye, a tech marketing and events company. All this month, they are running a virtual Cyber Carnival Games. The CyberWire is a media partner for the event. Here's Cat's Eyes, Jessica Gulick.
0: We are big believers in utilizing games in order to stay motivated and keep your skills sharp, as well as learn new skills. And with everybody at home and. Uh, you know, all the webinars that are going on. We wanted to do something different this October to bring a little bit of fun into everybody's lives. Uh, So we reached out to our uh, contacts at the various different game platforms and said, hey, why don't we come together and have a carnival, kind of a virtual carnival that would allow anybody and everybody to partake in some of the games throughout October. And we got a lot of excitement um, back from those game platforms. And so it made a lot of sense to, to see if we can't do this for the first time. Yeah, you know,
1: it, it struck me as as I was uh, considering this that I, I think everybody has their favorite carnival game. That's one of the things that I think people like about carnivals. As you make your way down the midway, pretty much everybody can find something that, that's for them. And I think you've set up something similar here. Can, can you take us through the, the sort of uh, the creation of, of having a variety of things that people can engage with?
0: Certainly. So we... We tried to make sure that we had enough games that would give variety, as you said, but also speak to different levels of skill. Um, Everybody from a normal employee who is just looking for some security awareness, what do I need to know, right? So I can be a a better employee when it comes to cybersecurity, Um, as well as to the uh, hacker amongst us uh, that is more expert skilled and they want to just win, right? They just wanna play, they just wanna have fun kind of thing. And so when you look at the different uh, games that we have available to us, uh, we have some uh, some like Packet Wars. Packet Wars is known in the community if you are in cybersecurity and you are a hacker. Um, they do invitationals. They have uh, a variety of games from very simple uh, to very complex and, and more team versus team kind of battle royale style. So when we were talking to Angus Blitter, uh, who is the Packet Master He said, why don't we have a staged... Uh, event so that we can do kind of stage one, which is more puzzle cracking, almost like an Easter egg hunt, if you will. And then we'll go to the second stage, which is more like find the flags. And we'll go to a third stage, which is more battle royale. And then any level can start, um, but you've got to have expert level to make it to the end. Um, And we we love that idea, right? Uh, Because that really allows us to tap into the most um, audience that we could.
1: So what do you hope to take away from this? Is this something that perhaps could turn into an annual event?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, we are expecting this to be an annual event. We've already got such a great response from the community. Um, as of last night, we're over 400 players, um, and each player is playing an average of three games. Um, so It's definitely tapped into a need in the market, if you will, a desire uh, to play and have fun. And it's all walks of life, uh, which is great. So uh, we're looking forward to 2021 being um, a wonderful second year for the Cyber Carnival Games.
1: That's Jessica Gulick from Cat's Eye. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, This article from uh, the folks over at ZDNet uh, caught my eye. The title is, This Company's Zoom Policy May Be the Worst I've Ever Heard. (laughs) It's uh, written by uh, Chris Mazitzik. He writes the Technically Incorrect column over there. Uh, ben, we talk a lot about policy stuff. This is a work policy issue here. What's going on? So
2: I certainly agree with the headline here, and this is what nightmares are made of. <laughs> Basically, a, there's a workplace advice columnist in a New York publication called The Cut, and somebody wrote in to her, uh, an anonymous employee from an anonymous employer, That this company's policy is that they have to be, every employee has to be on Zoom literally for the entire workday. And the rationale is that the boss can, you know, foster a collaborative effort. It's like being in a physical office. Uh, People don't have to send an email or a Slack message uh, to ask questions of their coworkers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There are a couple problems I have with that right off the bat. Uh, First of all, Working from home, even if you are working seven and a half out of the eight hours in a day, is going to capture th- some things that wouldn't be captured otherwise in a workplace. Mm. Um, people have spouses, people have kids, people have pets. Uh, you know, so that would bother me. I would not want people to see what's going on in this uh, work from home situation right. for all eight hours of the day, even if I, uh, you know, am actually working for those eight hours. So that's problematic. Uh, and then just you know the stress of it to have to be, you know, to feel like you're being watched over by your boss when it seems like this employer didn't actually have all of its employees in the same physical workspace pre-COVID just seems to me to be an excessive policy. I don't know how you feel about this, but it seemed excessive to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and I think this, this goes to, there's a philosophy that I tend to think is outdated, which is that, you know, if you work for me, if you work for me, uh, you know, I own you from nine to five. And you know, and it's one thing if you're an hourly employee and I'm paying you for your time, right? Right. But if you are a salaried employee, my philosophy is, you know, am I paying you for your time or for your talent? Um, and I would say for a salaried employee, I'm paying you for your talent more than the number of hours that you put in. Uh, so this notion that, and I think having an office, enabled uh, employers, whether intentionally or not, to know where their employees were. They can keep an eye on them. They can walk by. You know, is is Bob or Jane at their cubicle? Where are they? What are they doing? You know, and so I can see from a boss's point of view how that would be a desirable thing to be able to keep track of employees. But uh, I think one of the things that all this work from home stuff has sort of laid bare is that, maybe that wasn't necessary that we're not seeing drops in productivity. We're not seeing you know, giving people more freedom to choose their own hours and even choose where they work and how they work and, you know, whether, whether they're out- wearing underwear. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, I was going to say pajamas, but yeah, underwear right, good right, too. Yeah. Yours is a little more G <laughs> rated. Yep. But uh, yeah. Um, so this, I, I guess the the bottom line for me is that this strikes me as an old school and I think potentially outdated notion, particularly given what we've learned from this pandemic situation where everybody's working from home. And I think the thing that many bosses feared, which is that if I couldn't keep close eye on my employees, you know, they're just going to be running around and not getting any work done. Well, that hasn't come to pass that we, we haven't really seen that. I think the evidence doesn't support that notion. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Another thing they mention here is if you are
2: a boss to, that wants to know what your employees are doing at all times, there are less intrusive tools you could use. I mean, people who are on uh, Office 365, Microsoft Teams, you could monitor who's logged in at, at any given time. You know, I guess if you wanted to record keystrokes or something severe like that, there's probably a way you could do that. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're talking about a law firm, they're always billing a client, so you can look at how many hours in a given day a client was billed. Um, This just seems like an unfair extension of that type of logic, where you're peering into somebody's home, which is just such a sacred space from both a policy perspective and a legal perspective that I I do think it's overly intrusive, even if uh, you grant that bosses have the right to know what their employee uh, what their employees are doing at all times.
1: Yeah. Well, oh, and I think about you know, for example, my son Jack. Uh, you know, he's d- doing school from home right now. They're doing remote learning, and the teachers are not allowed to require that the students have their cameras on because of privacy issues.
2: Yeah, and I think that's extremely wise. We have the same policy at the University of Maryland School of Law. Um, I think it's a very wise policy. You never know what a person's home situation is. Um, and that home situation could be very personal. They could be taking care of kids or el- elderly relatives. Um, there could just be something in a, a room that you don't want your boss to see. And I think that's completely justified. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I completely agree with that critique.
1: Maybe if the company wanted to pay to have an addition put on my house, Or, (laughs) uh, yeah, exactly. Create your own
2: room at my house, then maybe you can, yeah, build a little little home
1: office in the backyard, you know, a little outbuilding or something like that. Then, then maybe we can have a conversation. But, uh, you're if I'm working from home, you're a guest in my house, and I don't think you have uh, the right to have uh, unlimited access to me, even during work hours. It just seems to me, it just seems like a bad management policy. It's just because, just just a bad boss in my yeah, opinion. It's, right? Yeah, so it's it a way to get to your employees
2: yeah. <laughs> to strongly dislike you. Let's put right. it that way. Right, yeah.
1: exactly, exactly. All right, well, again, the uh, the poli- the, uh, the article is titled This Company's Zoom Policy May Be the Worst I've Ever Heard. It's over at ZDNet. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you.